Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, for another year, a year in which we can serve you, a year to grow in your grace, a year to grow in knowledge of you through your word, a year to serve you. Father, we have a, a year that probably has a goal of, or two in our minds, a goal of, of uh, something we want for our family, for our business, for our life in some way. We look forward to a new year because it gives us a chance to reset and things that we believe we need to do better. And that's, that's a healthy mindset. Father, let us turn that same mindset, though, toward you. That uh, if this is the year, Father, that your son would return for his church and our life with you in eternity would begin in a, in a glorious way, well then, Father, let us be able to look back on the last year we spent on this earth prior to that moment with confidence that we spent it properly. We used it appropriately. We were focused on the right things. We had our heart set on things that were eternal. Don't let us waste another day or another year, Father. Let us use it to your glory and let it begin today as we study in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to continue on the theme, it is a new year, and you know what comes with a new year, of course. New Year's resolutions. We resolve to eat better. We resolve to exercise more. We resolve to stop bad habits, start good habits, all of that. And most of our resolutions last about as long as the champagne does on Christmas Eve, or the grape juice, whatever it is you choose. And nevertheless, despite its low probability of success, the tradition endures And I have found personally that the secret to successful New Year's resolution keeping is to select goals that are achievable. For example, here are some of mine for 2017. Number one, I'm going to sleep more. Very achievable. Uh, I'm going to share my opinions more freely with other people. I really feel like I've got that one down. I'm going to reduce the number of jokes in my sermons. Done! That was easy. All of those easily achievable. But the thing about New Year's resolutions, and the thing that keeps bringing us back to this idea of adopting new thought and new behaviors, I think it endures, even though we fail at them so often, because it's evidence of how much desire we have to be different than who we are today. It's like wiping the slate clean. We want this ultimate do-over every year, and maybe we're just wishing that making major changes in our life can be as easy as flipping the page on the calendar. Well, praise to our Lord Jesus Christ who has already given us something new, the ultimate do-over, if you will, in our faith in Him. He's made us new again in His likeness. We have an entirely new and better future ahead of us in eternity because of Him. And I might add, that future is a lot closer than you think. And I don't just mean in the sense that Christ's return is imminent. That's true as well. But I mean in the sense that it's already begun. Every day, Christ is at work in us to make us new through the study of His Word, through the counsel of His Spirit. And in the study of Ephesians, which we're engaged in right now, Paul's been explaining, I guess you could say, this spiritual do-over that has come to us by faith. So now we're at the end of chapter 2, and at the end of chapter 2, Paul is teaching on the unity of all believers, which is made possible by our common faith in our common Redeemer. And just because it's been a couple weeks, let me give you a few minutes of reminder for where we've been. Paul's been explaining to his largely Gentile audience of readers how they had at one time been outside the grace of God. They were strangers to God. They were strangers to the covenants that God gave to the nation of Israel exclusively. And then in verse 13, we reached that all-important phrase, but now, Paul says, now through Jesus Christ, we the Gentiles have an opportunity to know the living God. Because now... 
the message of salvation has reached our ears, and therefore we, who, Paul says, were formerly far away from God, we have now been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul said that it was as if the stone wall that encompassed the temple had been torn down so that now Gentiles could now flood into that space where before it was only for Jews, where before he only revealed himself to the Jewish people, now all people can know him. And let's pick up there again in that explanation. Verse 14 is where we'll start and then move forward from there. Let me read with you. Verse 14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says our common faith in Jesus Christ destroyed a barrier that had previously divided Jew and Gentile. And of course, we know in physical terms he's referring to this wall that I've described that surrounded the temple in Jerusalem. Before Christ came, only Jewish people had the opportunity to enter that space, that temple compound in which the Jews went to worship. A Gentile, even a Gentile who was God-fearing, or we might say converted to Judaism, even that person was never permitted into the grounds of the temple. He or she could only worship at a distance, outside the wall, always wondering what was going on inside. Now I should add, by the way, that doesn't mean Gentiles weren't saved by faith in the Old Testament. We know from the Old Testament that occasionally... Gentiles would come to faith and perhaps even attach themselves to the people of Israel. You can think of examples like Rahab or Ruth out of the Bible or even the Queen of Sheba who came to Solomon. And then there were entire cities on rare occasions like Nineveh under the influence of the prophet Jonah who came to faith, a city of Gentiles. But friends, those exceptions, they just prove the rule, which is that Gentiles were largely excluded from the family of God. Only Jews enjoyed an abiding relationship with God through the covenants that he gave to Israel. And chief among those covenants was the Mosaic Covenant, which defined Israel as a nation and as God's people, and then gave them God's law. That law, Paul said earlier in this letter, was the principal cause of Israel's separation from the Gentile people. The Jews, because of the law, were to dress and to eat and otherwise live very differently than the Gentile neighbors that lived around them. The law compelled Israel into this unique lifestyle. And over time, those ordinances, those rules, they inflamed the passions of the flesh, both among Jews and among Gentiles. For the Jewish people, this law that they knew came from God and the covenant that enacted it made them haughty gave them a sense of superiority, made them prideful toward their Gentile neighbors. They thought of the Gentiles as nothing more than simply fodder for the fires of hell, we said. They called them dogs. And their special relationship with Yahweh gave them excuse to do this, to look down on Gentiles, to despise Gentiles, and to even mistreat them at times. Meanwhile, the Gentiles, well, they saw Jews as strange, as isolated, as a people who were enjoying unexpected, undeserved prosperity in the land. And so in jealousy, Gentiles persecuted Jews, seeking to take their prosperity for themselves. And this continues on to today. 
And in that sense, Paul is saying, the commandments of the law resulted in enmity between these two groups of people. Now, let's be clear. The Bible is not saying that God is to blame for the sinful response out of the heart of the Jew or out of the heart of the Gentile. God's not the author of that sin. Nevertheless, as long as the law held true for the Jews, as long as it was their guiding law, then it would naturally foster this separation and as a result, the enmity that came from that. Meanwhile, there was one ironic similarity between Jew and Gentile, and that was their sinful condition. Both of them were separated from God by their sin, and so both of them had enmity with God over that sin. So the Jews thought themselves superior because they had the law, but it was that law of God that condemned them for their sin. While the Gentiles, well, they thought themselves better because they didn't live in all the strange ways that the law required, and yet that godless lifestyle left them with no hope. So neither was better than the other in that respect. Paul says all that changed when the promised Messiah came. Paul says in verse 15, Through his flesh, notice the word, through his flesh, Christ abolished the enmity that exists between these two groups. Now, obviously, hatred between Jew and Gentile didn't disappear the moment Jesus appeared. So what does Paul mean when he says that Christ abolished the enmity or the hatred that marks the relationship between Jew and Gentile? Well, the answer is Christ's flesh brought the law of commandments to an end. And it was the law that prompted the division and the enmity. The law of Moses demanded that Israel live according to these certain standards that I've discussed. And if Israel met the terms of that law, the law itself stipulated that the nation would know prosperity, that they would have security in their land, and that they would know their Lord who would dwell with them. It's all a veiled reference to Israel receiving the kingdom in the time of Christ's second coming. But the law goes on to say that if Israel fails to live according to the standards of the law, then the covenant will require that Israel receive very severe penalties. The law is unforgiving. It doesn't offer any escape clause. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card in the law. And because no sinful human being can ever meet the terms of the law, it was essentially a no-win deal for Israel. That's why the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. There's the word again that Paul used, flesh. Paul says Jesus took on flesh and he did so to live as a man so that in his earthly life he could meet all the terms that the law demands. He never sinned, testified by Scripture, and therefore Jesus met the law's requirements for righteousness. And by his perfect life, he therefore is deserving of everything that the law says that you get if you meet its terms, which is to say the kingdom. But then Jesus goes a step further. Though he hadn't done anything to warrant death, he hadn't disobeyed the law, nevertheless, he died as the law required. He paid the price that the law required for sin, though he had none. And therefore, he not only fulfilled the law's requirements for living, he fulfilled the law's requirements for sinning. And as a result, he makes available a payment for others. Jesus himself said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 5. 5.17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Jesus says his very purpose in coming to the earth was to fulfill the law. To fulfill just means to complete something. 
to bring it to its natural end. So Jesus is saying he came to complete the law, which would mean to complete it by keeping all of its requirements, completing it for righteousness sake. And to complete something for righteousness sake means to live according to its exacting standards, which he did. But completing the law for our sake meant he had to go the next step and pay the price for our sin. And he did that also. So he's done everything the law required. He's done both halves. He fulfilled everything the law required for living sinlessly. And then he took the price the law exacts for those who can't live sinlessly. He did both sides of the law. Because he fulfilled the law in this way, Paul says, the law is no longer in effect for those who believe in Jesus Christ. As a Jew... Or as a Gentile places his or her trust in Jesus Christ, that person is credited by God with having met all of the law's requirements. As if you did what Jesus did. You get credit for his work. So by our faith, Paul says, the law comes to an end. He says in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I use an analogy, not a great one, it's not perfect, but it it serves the purpose anyway. I use an analogy of a contract that you might make with someone who's going to do work at your property, like a painter, for example. If someone was coming to paint your house, you might have a, a simple contract for what they're going to do, what you're going to pay them, and so on. And that contract takes force, takes effect, when it's signed. So it was signed, it was agreed to, you've signed your contract with your painter. At some point, though, that contract is finished. What has to happen to bring the contract to an end? Well, everything that's in it has to be done. The painter has to do everything he said or she said that they would do, and you have to do everything you said you would do, which is namely paying them. But having done all the things required, it's no longer in force. It's done. It's finished. It's not been torn up. It's just been completed. That's the sense of what the Scripture means when it says that the law has come to an end for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not because God tore it up. It's because everything it requires has been met in the one in whom we placed our trust, in whom we have been credited having done it with Him. Paul says that law was the cause of the separation between Jew and Gentile, the enmity between us. Well, now that the law itself has been completed, and Jesus now, having done away with the law, having completed it, there's no dividing anymore. There's no temple. In fact, there's no need for a temple because there's no sacrifice. There's no practices of the law whatsoever. The source of our division is ended because it was completed. What's more, the end of the law also means the end of our enmity with God. The law, remember, was the source of our condemnation, Scripture says. It was the law that convicted us of our sin. It was the law that specified the penalty for our sin, which is death. But since Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf, well, then we're no longer condemned under it. It doesn't have any power over us anymore. Paul says in verses 15 through 16, The Lord did all this work, and he did so in order to make Jew and Gentile Notice it says, in one new man. And now, of course, man here is not referencing just men only, of course. It's a reference to humanity. So he's saying that Christ brings Jews and Gentiles together into one new person, we might say. It refers to the change that comes to every believer by faith. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew to begin with or a Gentile, you receive a new spirit. And with that, you have a new life, freed from condemnation, freed from the law, And that change brings with it newness of life, the scripture says. However, it does not matter whether you started as a Jew or whether you started as a Gentile. That new thing you become is equal for both. Neither comes in with an advantage. Neither can turn to the other and claim that they have something that the other lacks because of where they started. 
It's like on a race of people in the blocks of the starting line, you know, because it's an oval, and because the, the lanes go around the oval in, in concentric circles, if you start on an outer lane, we need to start you closer in because you have farther to run. So the blocks aren't all in line, they're staggered. So you have different starting points, in a sense, but you only have the same ending point at the end of that race. Similarly, we may have different starting points in the sense that Jews were closer to God, they knew more of Him, they had the covenants, they had the prophets, they had all of that to their advantage. Gentiles, we had none of that. But those differences in starting point don't change the ending point. Once you come to Christ in faith, the two groups now are no longer different. They're on the same plane, they're moving in the same direction to the same finish line. They've been reconciled into one new person, as it were. They both lacked salvation before, now they both have it by the same means, by faith. And in that sense, they are one man, one person. They both stand before God equally, with the same identity. Which is to say that if you ever encounter a Jewish person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and they still carry a sense of haughtiness about them, well, have mercy for that person. (laughs) Have some forgiveness in your heart for them. But also know that that attitude is not a proper attitude from Scripture. But by the same token, if you run into the Gentile, the non-Jew, who looks down on Jewish people in the way that we have seen historically to happen, that's also sinful. For once we are in this body together by faith, we're all equals. There's no source for that enmity anymore, except our own hearts. And then notice in verse 17, Paul now quotes from Isaiah 57, which is where you find the prophet foretelling that the Messiah's work would be intended to unite Jew and Gentile. He says that the Messiah would preach the good news to those who were near God, which obviously refers to Jews, so that He could also then preach to those who were far from God, that is, to the Gentiles. This quote demonstrates that Scripture acknowledges both Israel's preeminence among nations, yet also the equality of Jew and Gentile in the church. So Israel as a nation will always have a special place in the world as God promises. And that special place for Israel continues into the kingdom as a nation. But that distinction is not observed on a personal level within the church. So a Jewish believer today in the body of Christ is still a member of the nation of Israel, though they are a Christian. But within the body, the distinction of Jew and Gentile has no relevance because we find our way to the Father in the same way and we have the same importance, the same equality before Him. Those two things can be true at the same time. That is, that there can be a special designation of people, the Jewish nation, And yet on an individual level within the body, we don't apply any difference. You know, we live in such a different world than Paul does. We don't see Jew and Gentile contending with one another too often in the church anymore. The church today is virtually 100% Gentile, although there is always a Jewish remnant within the church. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, if you look a little deeper, you can still find today in the church places, churches, that put undue importance on Jewish background or on Jewish traditions or on even the practice of the law itself to some degree. But that really is not, according to what Paul said, that is not an appropriate way to work within the body of Christ. Even if it's intended to honor Jewish roots of our faith, even if it's intended to educate us to the things of the Old Testament, which is certainly a valuable endeavor, nevertheless, if it encroaches too much into the life of the body, if it becomes a distinction within the life of the body, if we hold those who have a Jewish lineage 
in some higher regard than those who don't. If that starts to creep into the life of the church, well, then we're definitely not on the right track. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jewishness offers no advantage within the body of Christ. Not once you've come to faith. And therefore, let's not waste any time on it. Let it go. Let's just move on. Instead, like a resolution, New Year's resolution, let's focus on new things. And that's what Paul goes to lastly. He goes in verse 19. He says, So then, you, speaking to Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom... The whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And this is really our key focus here this morning, this last piece of the chapter. Paul says, Gentiles need not hang their heads or think themselves second-class citizens in the body of Christ. On the contrary, he says, we are no longer strangers We are no longer aliens. Those are two terms you find specifically in the law. The law often spoke of foreigners or strangers among God's people. It was always referencing the Gentiles who would come in amongst the Jews. It labeled them. It made them feel like lessers because they were in light of the covenants. Gentiles could associate with Israel. They could participate in the feasts. They could worship Yahweh at a distance, but they were always outsiders. Gentiles were never let to forget that they were the strangers and aliens among God's chosen people. But all that should have disappeared if it still exists at all for us. We are no longer strangers. We are no longer outsiders. And may I turn this just a little from Jew and Gentile to perhaps something a little more contemporary. You're not an outsider because you've only been here a month and there's people that have been here 25 years. You're not an outsider because your race is different than the majority. You're not an outsider because you are divorced and someone else is married. You're not an outsider because you don't know the Bible and someone else does. We understand there are differences. We sense those differences. We might make too much of them even at times. But from God's point of view, He's not excusing our sin. He's not excusing our laziness or spiritual immaturity. He is calling all of us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to put away the sins that mark our life. That's a common goal. But in the meantime, those things don't matter. They're not distinctions. They're not means of grading ourselves in relationship to other people. All those things tend to do in the long run is emphasize division when the whole point of us coming together is to create unity, to find the common things that have brought us together, which is first and foremost the Spirit of God who lives in us. We are all fellow citizens, Paul says, with all saints. That means Old Testament, that means New Testament, that means denominations don't matter. It means the buildings, the place of the world. It doesn't matter. All those who are of faith in Jesus Christ are equal, made so by the work of the Spirit in us. Paul says we are as privileged as the one born in the household of the Master. He's referring back to the Jew-Gentile thing again, but in the days before Christ... A God-fearing, and that was the term, by the way, the Old Testament term for a believing Gentile is a God-fearing Gentile. So a God-fearing Gentile could convert to Judaism, but that didn't make the person Jewish. Because Judaism is not what you do, it's who your dad was. And you can't change that. So a Gentile could never become Jewish, because Jewishness is obtained by birth only. So the best the Gentile could hope for was to be permitted to remain among and around God's people for a time. The Bible had a special word for that in the Old Testament, a sojourner. A sojourner within the nation of Israel. All of that stuff, though, all of that is gone. By faith, we are all considered, Paul says, members of the household. 
Full privileges. A son of the master. And he ends the chapter with an analogy. Paul begins to speak of us as the believers in the body of Christ like stones in a building. And you heard from Felice's readings that this is a common metaphor in Scripture. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament, certainly, with the idea of a cornerstone and a building around that cornerstone. And it's carried into the New Testament. Peter brings that same analogy to his teaching. So I want you to work through this construction project with me as Paul presents it, beginning here with the foundation. Paul begins his rhetorical construction project with the most important part of any building. Paul says the church body, the people who by faith in Jesus Christ are part of the body of Christ, the church. Paul says that body, that church has a foundation and it was built by the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, friends, are the New Testament prophets. And prophets here obviously refers to the Old Testament, Jewish prophets as well. And collectively, Paul says that's the foundation. How are they the foundation? Well, what's common between those two groups? Well, what makes them prophets, what made them apostles, was they delivered the word of God to mankind. That's what's common between them. So the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets of the New Testament, the apostles, delivered the word of God to the world. And the word of God, I'm talking about every word written between the two covers in this book, what's contained in it as delivered by the Spirit of God through men, this is the foundation of the body of Christ. It is the authority for all that we believe. It is the guide for all living. It is the guide to everything we do as a body. And, of course, as Paul adds, the cornerstone of that foundation is Jesus Christ himself because it is him who established the church in his blood, the new covenant. Christ is the subject of this book. You've heard me say this in times past. Pick up your Bible, turn to any page, point to it, and I'll show you Christ. Because he's on every page, one way or another. This book is about him at every turn. So he is the subject of it, and more than that, he's the deliverer of it. Because the Spirit of God is the one who moves in the heart of a man to write the words of God as intended, and that Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, we're told in Scripture. So it's about him, it's from him, it's because of him, it's all him. And it's the foundation. Therefore, the church, you and I, have to keep this book and all that it contains at the heart of who we are and what we do. If the church ceases to have the Word of God as its guide, then it ceases to have the authority and, more than that, a very purpose in existing. Because it is the foundation. Just like any building, if your foundation is faulty, well, then the whole structure is faulty. So if a church damages its foundation, speaking of this, if we do violence to it in some way, well, then we're only doing something at our own peril. It's only a matter of time before the whole thing falls apart. And compromise with the Word of God comes in a lot of different forms. It usually begins with a denying of a literal interpretation of what it says. Instead of being taught, as we should, that the text means what it says, somewhere along the way, a church might begin entertaining creative and false views of what it says, over-spiritualizing it, turning it into nothing but fable or analogy, or just using it as a prop, a backdrop to, to just say whatever we'd like to say. And then if that continues, then chasing after faddish interpretations will become a goal in itself, leading the church into many foolish beliefs and practices. And, of course, I'm preaching to a choir here of sorts, because you wouldn't probably find yourself in this little building on a day like this if you didn't have some respect and desire to hear the Word of God. But that final step of compromise, that is when the church has started to seek for interpretations and meanings outside the book, it will inevitably lead to us setting aside the Word of God altogether. 
Today, it's easy to find that. It's easy to find a lot of buildings meeting in this city and elsewhere around the world who are churches, at least in name, but they don't have the Word of God present in the pulpit. It's not part of why they meet. It's not discussed at any length. They meet under the banner of Christ, but they do not have the authority of His Word. I'm not saying those gatherings would lack true believers necessarily. We're saying that those believers lack the truth they've gathered to hear. And that's not something we ever want to do here. If the church body is to remain true to its master, it must forever submit to the Word of God and never grow weary of studying it or preaching it. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So that's where Paul starts with his construction project. Let's be clear on our foundation. Then Paul says the believers... Well, we're the building that sits on top of this foundation. And it's always been said, and you've heard it many times, the church is not the building, the church is the people. We know that. But notice something that you may have overlooked. This is the thing I think we we should be focused on in this analogy. Paul says, we have been fitted together. Think about that. The word in Greek for fitted together, it refers to the way a stonemason will work the surface of adjoining stones so as to create a seamless joint when they're put in place in the wall. So Paul says... That we are not just some haphazard stack of stones that just happen to come together in this particular building by chance and circumstance. And here we are and look at us all. Now the word of God says, on the contrary, you and I were fitted together precisely by the father, the master stonemason. So first and foremost, Paul is referring to the larger body of Christ. When all is said and done, the total population of God's people when we're all together in the kingdom, will show itself to be a perfectly fitted group of humanity that serves God's purpose in the kingdom perfectly. Not a single person there will be superfluous. There will be just the number of people needed to fill just the number of jobs to serve the Lord in just the number of ways He wants served to His glory in the kingdom. And it will be self-evident. You and I will be able to look around and see the work of the Lord in fitting us all together. And we will recognize that all of us were needed even more than we realized when we were here. But each of us also occupies a particular place on earth, right? You live a certain place. You live in a certain time in history. So that must tell us that Paul is speaking of more than just the cosmic grandeur of what God is doing overall. He's also saying that you're not participating in this local church by chance. I'm here for a reason. You're here for a reason. The Father has fitted us together precisely. He's fitted you and me so that when we're together, we slide into place with one another in just the right way to serve a unique purpose. And that fact should remind each of us that you don't take your participation in your local body of Christians for granted. First and foremost, don't neglect the gathering, as Hebrew says. I want you to imagine a wall for a minute. A wall that's constructed by God. And each stone in that wall was carefully selected by God to complete the mosaic that he was intending to build. Now I want you to imagine, you're looking at that wall, and what if I took a few stones out? What if they decided to stay home on Sunday? So what happens to the wall? Well, in the beginning, it's mostly just a matter of appearances. The integrity of the wall is not weak, just because a few stones are missing. The rest of them make up the difference. But it doesn't look right, does it, with all those holes there? Instead of admiring the whole construction that God had intended, what is your attention going to be drawn to? Your attention is drawn to all those holes. 
Like a church that misses a key person in leadership or a a key volunteer or the funds that come from someone who contributes their their donations here or some other essential need. We may have 95% of what we have intended by God to glorify Him in this place, but those few missing pieces, that 5%, it gets our attention, doesn't it? It reminds us of how important every piece is. I think, frankly, that's a bit of where we are as a church. We know we're missing some key pieces. We want those pieces to be filled. Until they're filled, our attention keeps getting drawn to the open holes in the wall, right? But as more of those stones go missing, then at some point the wall's very survival becomes at risk, right? And I'm not talking about the failure of the church universal. The Lord is the one who builds His church. He's the one who leads His church. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So I'm not speaking about the health and continuation of the body of Christ generally, but I am speaking about a local congregation, whether this one or anyone. The place where we meet to serve our individual purposes in the body of Christ, that place is not necessarily exist forever. There's no guarantees. If a believer drifts away from gathering where God has fitted them precisely to meet, well, then they're going to suffer spiritually in the end. It's inevitable. Or if a member of the body falls away from corporate church attendance so that they can maybe instead study at home privately. I had a conversation with someone who says that to me. They don't need to be here because they're studying privately. That's not sound theology and it's not sound practice. Or because you attend small groups. That doesn't suffice. That's not how God has fitted us together. It's not a la carte. There's a reason why this gathering has endured for 2,000 years. There's a reason why this is a practice of the church universally. It's not by chance and it's not just habit. We know the body of Christ is more than just a once a week gathering. But the weekly gathering is of primary importance to the spiritual health of a church and every member. The Lord has gathered us because this is a forum in which the work of the Spirit and the hearts of His people is best accomplished as God has designed it. Not because it's perfect, not because it's not without its struggle, but because it's the appointed place. He's fitted us together. He's made it so. A stone can't do its job unless it's touching the stones on either side, and we can't do our job unless we're congregating and associating with those that we know. Now, of course, there's times to enter a church. There's times to leave a church. No one stays in a fellowship forever, and that's not a problem. But you don't shop for a church like you shop for a new car. You don't select it because it's shiny and new and has that new church smell. And by the same token, friends, you don't dump your old church just because it starts giving you some trouble. That's not how we do this. We should leave a church as we enter a church, which is obediently following the call of God and doing so in joy. Now, if you leave a church in protest, you may be running away from some important lesson that God wanted to teach you there, and He had fitted you there because that's where the rub was going to be. That's where you were going to face the challenge. That's where your patience was going to be tested. That's where your willingness to compromise or to be conciliatory or forgiving, that's where you needed to practice it. We need to feel equal conviction when you part from a church as you felt when you joined it. It needs to be a call. It needs to be an assignment of God. The second thing that Paul's analogy teaches us is that you have a unique contribution in whatever church you're a part of. As a mason shapes a stone as they build a wall, that mason is looking at the existing stones that are in the wall as they shape the one they're placing into that space. And that new stone is then cut and shaped precisely so that when it makes its home in the wall, it's going to match perfectly to what's already there. And of course, in the process of cutting away some of what's on that stone, taking away the rough edges and the like, it's going to throw off some sparks. 
He has to strike it carefully. He has to hit just the certain points that he wants to smooth away. But as that process finishes, what emerges is a smooth, perfectly fit stone that is now a part of something bigger than itself. That's a great picture of how sanctification happens within the body of Christ. When you come together with other people in the body of Christ, when we come together, whether it's here or in other gatherings, we show up with rough edges. Our personalities, our habits, our sins. And they have to be reshaped. If ultimately we're going to please the Lord, we have to be submitted to a process of some kind that's designed to change us. In spiritual terms. And the stonemason that does that chiseling is the Holy Spirit. And the chisel he wields is the Word of God. To slightly change an analogy Scripture gives us. Right? It's not a sword in this case. We're going to make it a chisel. But it's the same idea. The sword or the chisel in the hands of the Holy Spirit can do an awful lot of good work in our heart. If you just stay there long enough to let him hammer away. And it can be painful. It can throw off sparks. And by sparks I mean personal conflicts, hurt feelings... Wounded egos, conviction. But if you give that process time, and if you remain dedicated to showing up, to placing yourself in the wall, being the fitted part God intended you to be, you're going to see fruit. You find yourself slipping into place. And when the mosaic is finished, then you'll be able to stand back and see the value of why you came. We are God's building, Paul says. And the mortar that holds that building together is the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 22. It's God's construction project, and we are His materials. So you may not feel, or perhaps in the past you've not felt like your participation in a church. This church, any church, has mattered a whole lot. Because you're a quiet person, because you're not someone who wants to stand up in front of a crowd, because you've just never gotten involved, because you're busy and you're not here as often as you'd like to be. And so you're beginning to wonder, do you even need to be here? Maybe that's the feeling some Sunday mornings. If that's your attitude, friend, may I suggest that you're selling the Lord short. Not necessarily yourself, but the Lord. Because you're forgetting the Lord delights to show himself strong in weakness. And you're overlooking, he made a sovereign choice to drop you into the place that you are in. In this place, at least for now. So allow me to propose some collective New Year's resolutions. I mean, if you're going to break them, you might as well break some I came up with instead of your own. Can we resolve to serve the Lord in the new year? Can we resolve to serve Him in our appointed role above serving ourselves? Which might mean changing our calendar. It might mean setting an alarm on Sunday. It might mean reorganizing our work schedule. It might mean disassociating ourselves with certain commitments we've made elsewhere to make more time for the body of Christ. It may mean big change. It may mean small change. But I doubt it means no change. Can we resolve to make gathering in whatever form, on whatever day, a priority? Can we resolve to come prepared to worship, to pray, to study, and to serve others with energy and with joy and with persistence? Because we know that's what Christ wants. Can we resolve to be patient with all the other rocks around us? Including the rock that's standing up here. And can we resolve to do everything with love? You know what? If we even do... Half those. 2017 would be an awesome year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the start of a new year. And perhaps, Father, a renewed commitment to serving you and to being a part of something bigger than ourselves, something you created and are working to make beautiful in the image of your Son. Forgive us, Father, for when we have fallen short of serving the purpose you fitted us here for or when our motivation was waning. 
Encourage us in this year to come, Father. Defend us from the enemy and his schemes as he may endeavor to thwart our progress and to cause us to forget our commitments to you. Give us patience and love for those around us who are fitted next to us. And thank you, Father, for this church. Through all the years we've stood here, small, vulnerable as some would think, and yet, Father, it endures. It endures because you have chosen to keep us around as a body. And that's the greatest testimony I can think of, Father, for why we should be here. For, Father, anything that you have chosen to keep for this long must be valuable to you. It must be serving some purpose. And I pray, Father, we will never take that for granted. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.